Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Anti-Semitic hate speech, harassment, and violence has been on the rise in recent years in the United States, and there have been some very troubling high-profile incidents in recent weeks. To push back against this ugliness and hatred, we're going to revisit a conversation we had last year about the history of Jewish people in Iowa. The Jewish population in Iowa has never been particularly large, but there have been Jews in Iowa since at least 1833, and Jewish communities formed shortly thereafter. Later in the hour, I'll talk with historian Jeanette Gabriel, but first, a first-person account of what it's been like to live as a Jewish woman in Iowa for the last 90 years. Joanne Satin has been a member of Temple Emmanuel in Davenport since 1931. Hello, Joanne. Hi. Let's talk about your childhood. Go back in time just a little bit. I know that the temple was a very important part of your family life when you were growing up. Can you tell me what some of your earliest memories are of being there? The building that the temple was using at the time that I was a child and started in religious school was on 11th and Brady Street. There was no parking that anybody could find, and, and it was very difficult to get to. But it was an, we had bought it as an old, as a church and, and renovated it, and um, it had a heating system where the pipes rattled all the time. But it was it was um it was our it was our synagogue, and we had we had Sunday school there, we had services there. Um, it was a very very nice place. A lot of my friends were married there. Can you tell me a little bit about your family? Uh, my parents, my father was lived in this community all, community all his life. My mother was born and raised in Chicago and came here when she married my father. Um, she, My father took her to an Orthodox synagogue when they first were married, and she was appalled at it. And after that, they, we joined Temple Emmanuel, which was reform. And that was more to my mother's liking. I'm not sure that it was at my, to my father's liking, but I think it was to hers. And we were members there. I have been a member there since I was five. Wow. So tell me a little bit about the Jewish community in Davenport when you were growing up. I mean, obviously, you had your congregation at the temple. How large was the Jewish community? It was, I think, the Jewish community was in its heyday in my parents' generation. It was very vibrant. We had a lot of members, and we were very active. And most of our members had businesses, large businesses. And um, it, the temple was the center of our not only religious life, but social life as well. One of the reasons it was the center of your social life was not just because of this vibrant, warm, loving community, but also because of anti-Semitism. Tell me how that affected your family. Well, there we knew there were places that we were not welcome. That's all. And we didn't go there. And so that's why the temple was the center of our social life as well because we had many places that we knew we were not welcome. 
Did your family talk about that when you were young? My family talked about nothing. I mean, they never told me anything. All of my information is what I saw and felt or heard from other people. My family never spoke of it. Can you tell me about what you saw and felt personally? Did Were there times when you felt unwelcome or discriminated against because you were Jewish? It's just that I felt different. And I knew I was different. And I knew that all the Christmas celebrations in the schools, which there were lots of them, mm-hmm. I knew that was not me. And so that didn't didn't bother me a whole lot. I just knew that that's not where I belonged. What's the most important Jewish holiday for you? I would say Passover. And why is that? You know, Passover is a family celebration. Everybody gets together. The meal takes days to fix. Um, and we usually, all of my family get together at that time. And it is a home celebration. It is not a synagogue celebration. Mm. Tell me a little bit more about your life at the temple, because I know that you have been part of a sisterhood at Temple Emmanuel for a long time. Tell me about the sisterhood. The sisterhood did all the scut work. They they did all the parties. They they raised money for the for the synagogue. They they um. They were the people who did the, the the small jobs. They weren't small, but they were considered small. Right, the important work the that had to get done, but nobody else wanted to do it, right? That's exactly what we did. Tell me about some of the, the women that, that you were part of that sisterhood with. What was it like? Uh, I was president of the sisterhood for some time. And uh, we had a very, li- we had a lively sisterhood. We had a lot of members. The women at that time did not work, and so their days were usually free. And we had lovely luncheons, and we had um, we had celebrations of, and, and, uh, of one kind or another. We invited other churches to come and participate with us. We gave a big, big dinner at the temple, and it was called the Smorgasbord. And that went on for many years. And um, we had, I, we served 900 people in a day. Wow. And the entire congregation helped with that. And I was in charge of the kitchen, which was a huge job. And we had to be very, very careful who we invited to work in the kitchen because things got pretty hectic. And we wanted to make sure there was nobody in there who was going to lose their cool and start yelling and screaming, which occasionally we had. But um, it, we, it, it was a huge, huge project, raised a lot of money. Um, we had a gal who came and worked in the kitchen, and she brought her blender. And at the end of the day, she made whiskey sours for all of us. And we were so tired at the end of the day. We didn't know what end was up, but we sure were happy after we had her whiskey sours. <laughs> I'll but bet you... Were, I'll bet as much as hard as you worked, I bet you made some very close friends. I did. It was, it was great. It really was. And it was, there was a, there was a a camaraderie that unfortunately I don't think there is anymore. 
You mentioned that you feel like the Jewish community in Davenport was in its heyday in your parents' generation. What do you see now? How have things changed? Well, number one, we have a much smaller congregation. We only have 10 children in the religious school, and that's because we've joined, we've jo- uh, we're uh, occupying a building with the Jewish community in Rock Island, and that's the combined number of children, 10. Mm. I, I mean, I can remember when one of my sons was in confirmation class, there were 25 kids in his class. And so, that is all gone. Yeah. Why, why do you think it has dwindled so much? Well, first of all, when my children were growing up, there were no jobs here. And they graduated from college and they left. And that took that generation. And so we are missing that, that group of people. You are describing something that, that I think people in congregations all over the state of Iowa of all different denominations have seen happen. Uh, we've talked I about so. we've talked about the the brain drain, young people leaving the state. As small as the the Jewish community is in your temple and in Davenport now it still sounds like it's a very important part of your life. It is. What would you like people to know about the Jewish community in Iowa if you could Tell everybody one thing. Mm. We're a pretty vibrant, great people, and we make good contrib- we make great contributions. And I don't think that we will disappear altogether, but we are definitely shrinking. Joanne, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's been my pleasure, and thank you for calling me. Joanne Satin has been a member of Temple Emanuel in Davenport since 1931. Temple Emanuel is Iowa's oldest continuously active Jewish congregation. More Jewish history in Iowa coming up. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're exploring Jewish history in Iowa and revisiting a conversation from 2021. There has never been a large population of Jews in the state, but there have been Jewish people here since the 1830s, and some of them have remarkable stories. Jeanette Gabriel is director of the Schwab Center for Israel and Jewish Studies at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and she curated Jewish Women in Iowa, based at the Iowa Women's Archive at the University of Iowa. Hello, Jeanette. Hello, Charity. Thank you so much for being here today. And tell me what drew you to the study of Jewish people in the Midwest. Uh, Well, I just was really lucky. I was working on my PhD at the University of Iowa, and the Iowa Women's Archives had an opportunity to do a big collection, collecting papers on the history of Jewish women in Iowa due to a very generous gift from Joan Lipsky from Cedar Rapids 
who was a six-term state representative in Iowa between 1967 and 1978, and at the end of her life decided that she wanted to make this contribution to Jewish history to create archival collections that scholars and historians could use. Well, and for a long time, women's stories were not included in historical accounts. And especially for a long period of time when women didn't work outside the home, their influence went unseen and unrecognized in so many ways. So that's a big part of this project as well, right? Sure. And even when they did have a public space, it was not always recognized, like Dora Chapman, who ran the Englert Theater for years. Or Marlene Booth, who is a famous filmmaker from Des Moines, who made a film about growing up Jewish in Iowa and has made many other films. There's all these ways that women did professionally contribute outside the home that have gone unnoticed and are deeply rooted in their own experiences within the Jewish family. When you started looking for these stories, were they difficult to find? They weren't because the Jewish community in Iowa was so supportive. I went around the state giving presentations and people were so generous about sharing their own stories and stories of their mothers. There was a a feeling of a real need for these stories to be heard and the thought that that they haven't been. For example, Mildred Levin uh, from the University of Iowa, who got her Ph.D. in her late 40s and was really committed to telling, to, to assisting non-traditional students, and especially women, set up the Saturday and evening class program in the 1970s, which, which history is, is largely unknown. And she was so generous about sharing not just her own story, but the memoirs she had written of her mother and what she remembered of her, her mother singing German songs and telling her about life in Germany. You are are broadening your work now to to really focus on the Jewish experience in the Midwest. But focusing on the Jewish experience in Iowa, there, of course, have been these Jewish communities in, in different places around the state. But then there have also been Jewish people who live in communities where there's not a Jewish community. So in thinking about the Jewish experience over time, tell me more about what you learned about what that must have been like. Yeah, it's a fascinating dynamic. There's always been um, sort of the Jewish business in a lot of small towns throughout Iowa. So places where, uh, like Denison, Iowa, for example, where there was the one Jewish family that owned the Jewish business. And that family really had to integrate with the rest of the community and was largely welcomed by the community, though there were certain barriers in terms of children having opportunities to date. So there were points at which families felt that they had to move on for the well-being often of their children. And then that one Jewish business would be taken on by another Jewish family. So those were challenging circumstances for families to live in, but also they lived very rich lives and formed deep ties with the communities where they were while also sustaining connections to larger Jewish communities where they would travel for religious services on holidays. 
We know that, of course, anti-Semitism is not something that just exists in the United States. So there are a lot of Jewish people who fled their homelands because of anti-Semitism and, and incredible dangers to them and their families. And, of course, that was part of that European settlement experience in the United States. Can you tell me a little bit about how the Jewish experience evolved before World War II and, and after World War II in the Midwest? Sure. There is a very rich history here in Iowa, not just of refugees coming in the 30s, but also of refugee resettlement in in the post-war period. And the refugee resettlement in the post-war period was sponsored by different Jewish communities. So you had the Jewish community in Sioux City, which was the largest in the state, sponsoring refugees coming in, like Martin and Fanny Lebowitz who came out of concentration camps. Uh, Their son, Gordon, who lived his whole life in Sioux City, was born in a a displaced persons camp in Germany. And we have a beautiful collection on their family stories donated by their daughter, Ruth, or the Council Bluffs community that sponsored refugees to come and resettle in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And many of those refugees stayed. Some moved over to Omaha. And it really encouraged the next generation to be committed to refugee resettlement and welcoming insiders into the community. A largely unknown history in Iowa is the history of Gattergood Hostel right outside of Iowa City, which was a Quaker hostel, which was set up by the Quakers to bring in refugees during the late 30s and early 40s and really save the lives of many political leaders who were brought out of Germany and resettled into that hostel in rural Iowa. And it was supposed to be a model that the Quakers were looking to set up, to set up many of these hostels throughout the country. And for a series of reasons connected to disconnects, cultural disconnects between the Quakers and the refugees that were coming out of Germany, and also some local anti-Semitism, the hostel never really got off the ground as a national model, but it it is a powerful part of Iowa's history. I'm talking to Jeanette Gabriel. She is the director of the Schwab Center for Israel and Jewish Studies at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and she also curated the Jewish Women in Iowa Project based at the Iowa Women's Archive at the University of Iowa. We're talking about Jewish history in Iowa right now, and I want to go back to something that our earlier guest, Joanne Satin, said when she talked about her children leaving for opportunities. Now, we know that, of course, there are economic pressures that have led people in in previous generations to leave. There is there's there are all kinds of forces that lead young people to leave the state of Iowa. I'm curious if there's something else in the Jewish community, though, in Iowa, from from your perspective, that might make it hard to keep young Jewish people here? Well, that's an interesting question, Charity. I think think for the most part, what happened is there was a post-war boom that was the largest population of Jews in Iowa. And then that community of young people went to college. And a lot of the young Women joined the Jewish sorority, uh, Sigma Delta Tau, uh, and they were able to meet Jewish men and get married. And in many cases, those connections took them outside the state. It's always difficult when people grow up in small towns to bring them back after a college experience. So I'm not sure that that is 
singular to the Jewish experience. But I do think that one of the reasons that a lot of the Jewish families moved out of small towns was about the consolidation of the business models into larger stores, Mm -hmm. which made it unsustainable to run small stores throughout small communities. You have also said that that you feel like it can be hard to be Jewish in the Midwest because you are part of such a small community or maybe not a community at all. Right. It is a challenge. You know, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, and it was challenging there. I really feel what Joanne said about knowing you're an outsider, knowing that you don't fit in, knowing you don't belong. I've heard that from so many of the women that I've interviewed, that there's just this sense of not fitting into the community and in many cases not really fully understanding why as a young person. It is a challenging situation to retain a Jewish identity when there are so few Jews around. On the other hand, I think that it also created wonderful relationships between the small Jewish communities and the rest of Iowa's population, that many Jews felt deeply embraced and accepted in Iowa and and loved by the communities where they lived and are very proud to have that Iowa identity. With the time that we have left, I would love to hear more about some of the individuals that you learned about in your process with the Women's Archives. In particular, I know that there was a woman who was very involved in saving those incredible WPA post office murals. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Oh, sure. This is such an amazing story. And, you know, this is the beauty of of developing archival collections is that you stumble across totally unknown stories. So Blanche Redman, who grew up in Davenport, went away to become a professor. And when she retired, she came back. And she was the head of the Association of American University Women group in Iowa. And through that project in the 1970s and 80s, she began to work with women throughout the state to document WPA post office murals all throughout the state. And in some cases, really saved murals that were on the brink of destruction. And she documented this whole project, and it was really hands-on organizing work that local women would go out and find these murals and document them and research the artists that had done them. And she wrote up a whole manuscript, which we have in the archives, of her project, this community-based project, and couldn't find a single publisher who was willing to accept that publication of that document. So it's a really beautiful unknown story here in Iowa. Oh, wow. And something that we all (laughs) should be very grateful for as well. Uh, Who else should we know about? Well, you know, one of the things that I really loved is how important Jewish men are in helping tell the history of Jewish women. Somebody I particularly want to mention is Jim Sherman, who currently lives up in Minneapolis. He was a lay leader in Sioux City for Sher Zion and Congregation Beth Shalom for many, many years. And he gave to the archives copies of all the eulogies that he gave at funerals for those congregations. And within those eulogies, he tells beautiful stories of all the women that he knew in the community. And it's this incredible documentation of women's lives that he was so careful to keep and protect for us. So it's, it's little things like that 
that uh, are so powerful to documenting the history of who we are and for people to realize that the things that they have in their attics, the things that they don't think have much value, even beyond their own family's history, have tremendous value in terms of telling a broader narrative of who a community is and being able to document it for future generations. With such a a small population of Jewish people in Iowa and the connections that these different uh, synagogues and communities have with each other, do you feel like you've been able to to take a comprehensive look at this community? You know, it's a great question. I think there are so many different individual narratives that it can just seem like a cacophony of different stories, but there are patterns throughout them deep patterns that really speak to broader national Jewish narratives. And often when the Jewish stories outside of the coasts, out here in the hinterlands is told, it really just focuses on those narrow stories of businesses. But there is a much deeper, richer, complex story that we can see through women's voices, through women's letters, like Gusty Coleman, who came from Vienna in the 1930s and lived her whole life in Mount Vernon, Iowa, recently passed away at the age of 106. Her letters document trying to bring refugees uh, to the United States from throughout the world. These local stories that we have connect us to a broader, richer national and international history. So I think there is a larger comprehensive narrative of how the lives of particularly women, Jewish women here in Iowa, have been part of contributing to our national and international Jewish history and national story. Jeanette Gabriel, thank you so much for talking with me. Jeanette Gabriel is director of the Schwab Center for Israel and Jewish Studies at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and she curated the Jewish Women in Iowa Project based at the Iowa Women's Archive at the University of Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. You might think of them as a guilty pleasure, candy for the brain, or balm for the soul. Or you might be one of those people who thinks that they're too silly for your time. Either way, every year, tens of millions of Americans watch Hallmark holiday movies. The plots might be a little bit predictable. A happy ending is, of course, a must. But it's hard to deny that they are good, clean fun, and they leave most viewers smiling. Rick Garman has written more than 20 movies for the Hallmark channel and more for other networks. He's also published four novels, written multiple plays, and travel guides. He lives these days in Savannah, Georgia, but he grew up in Marion, Iowa. I talked with him last December, and here's a little bit of the trailer for his very first Hallmark holiday film, Christmas in Homestead. This is when we're supposed to be with the people we love. That's what Christmas is really about. It's going to be a great film. A big Hollywood star that comes to town. The most famous, prettiest actress in the world. And winds up with two leading men. You know, if this were a movie, this would be the part where we kiss. I just thought I felt something between us. Are you falling for this guy? Give me one more chance. Stay. Christmas in Homestead. On Hallmark Channel, the heart of Christmas. Just a Taste of Christmas in Homestead, written by Rick Garman. He is on the line with me now. Hello, Rick. 
Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being here. And I have thoroughly enjoyed much of your feel-good work over the years. So I, I'm definitely in the uh, in the camp of maybe guilty pleasure, but it's you bring people a lot of joy. So I was just having this conversation yesterday with one of the producers of, of the movie that was just on this weekend, and 3.4 million people, I think it was, something like that, uh, watched the movie and, you know, hopefully... Hopefully at least 2 million enjoyed it. So, you know, <laughs> how many uh, people get to say things like, you know, millions of people got a little bit of pleasure out of watching something you did. So Yeah, I think that's pretty powerful. So you started out wanting to be in the theater. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got started as a storyteller? Well, I did a lot of theater in high school at Linmar Mary in Marion. And I wanted to be an actor. So when I was 18, I moved to Los Angeles and I went to an acting school. And that was what I wanted my career to be. Then I graduated from that institution and went on an audition. And it was horrible (laughs) and depressing. And I realized I just don't have the stomach for this. So literally one audition and I said, nope, not doing this anymore. But I still loved the theater and I loved being a part of those kinds of stories. So I turned to writing and stumbled into it and had a few plays that were produced back in the 90s at small theaters around the country, including one of them was done at Theater Cedar Rapids. And from there, my career just sort of went in weird places. I thought I would be a you know huge, successful playwright after those plays were done, but that didn't happen. The list of huge, successful playwrights is pretty short. Is pretty short, yes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, hard to make a living as a playwright. So I uh, had day jobs. I did everything in the entertainment industry. I worked in the internet industry, but I kept writing. And in the 2000s, I had a TV show that went out that almost got made it by NBC. Then that didn't happen. And then in the 2010s, somewhere around 2015, A friend of a friend stumbled into this, helped me stumble into this wonderful, weird world of writing TV movies. And I wrote a movie for a channel called Pixel that was called Late Bloomer. And they loved it and had me write several more. And then that got the attention of Hallmark. And it's been that ever since. And then in 2017, I was able to quit my day job and be a writer full time. So it took me a long time to be a success as a writer. But I managed to make it. In turning your attention, a lot of your movies have been holiday movies. Um, Was that something that was important to you before you started writing these movies? I mean, what was your relationship with the holiday season? Uh, You know, I'm going to admit I didn't really have a relationship with the holiday season. My Christmas tradition was I would spend all day long at the movies. I would see four or five movies, and that was my Christmas and I loved it because, again, storytelling and movies, and I enjoy all that. But I didn't have family in Los Angeles. And all of my friends were off with their families. So this was a great thing for me to do. So I didn't have a, a huge connection to Christmas. But Christmas is very important to the world of TV movies. And so 
I dove in. They asked me to write a Christmas movie, and I said, why not? And the very first one that you wrote was Christmas in Homestead, right? Correct. The, the, well, this, yes, that's the first Christmas movie, and it was my first movie for Hallmark. And it takes place in Iowa. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a Homestead, Iowa, but you didn't actually know that I didn't, when you started writing it, right? I didn't. I, I, I thought Homestead worked as the name of a good town, just because of it, it's a lot about the sort of which a lot of the Hallmark movies are about, but you know, the, the small town family community coming together kind of thing. And Homestead just sounded like a good name for a town. This is obviously not what you imagined yourself doing back when you were pursuing becoming a playwright and, and through many other iterations, when you started writing these television movies and started having success with them, were you conflicted about taking this path? No, not at all. I, again, I, we know that these movies are not, they're not the award-winning things that get a lot of attention and, you know, people don't think, a lot of people don't think they're cool and uh, stuff like that. But, but again, they have such a huge reach and I've reached more people through these movies than I will probably ever reach in, in the other writing that I do. I have a lot of other projects that are, sort of in the works that are all very different from Hallmark movies, but uh, they, uh, again, they give people joy and that gives me joy. I, I'm proud of that. So I, I am, if all I ever do is write Hallmark movies for the rest of my life, I, I think that that is a, there, there are worse lives and worse careers to have. Well, and I think particularly, I, I know that people have been loving these movies for, for many years, but particularly for the last two holiday seasons, I will tell you that I have oh. indulged much, much more. This feels like a <laughs> necessary medicine during the pandemic. Well, I say it all the time, and in a world gone mad, <laughs> you which need comfort, in, right? which we're all living in, you know, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum or where you're at in your life, there's no way you cannot look out the window and go, wow, things are crazy out there. And with this, you get a couple of hours of, of comfort food. And I think that that's needed, uh, especially these days. You left Iowa to go to L.A. pretty much as soon as you could. <laughs> as soon as I could, yes. All right. And now you have left Los Angeles. You're living in Savannah, Georgia. What took you there? Uh, well, I the novel that I mentioned, the novel series that I mentioned in Terratos, when I started to write that story, I needed a place to set it. And for some reason, Savannah popped into my head. I'd, I'd literally been here once, one day, and was charmed by the city. But I wrote the novel and did a bunch of research and came here for many weeks, and I just sort of fell in love. It's a cool, interesting, different city. And I made some friends here and started coming here a lot. And then I bought a place a few years ago and was splitting time between L.A. and here. And then last year, COVID, I got scary in L.A. And I had a very good friend who passed away from it. He was 34 years old, completely healthy, no underlying conditions. And it's, I'm not going to lie, it scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> so I came to Savannah to sort of hide out. It was not quite as crazy here. And I just, I I looked around and I'm like, why do I want to go back? I was kind of done with LA. I'd been there for 35 years. And so now I, so a year ago I made the full-time move. I called friends and I said, get rid of all my stuff. I'm not coming back. Wow. You, uh, as a writer, you spend a lot of time working 
on your own anyway. And it sounds like you are incredibly prolific. Can you give me a little bit of a window into to what a workday is like and how you're able to produce so much? Another thing that I say often, and this is going to sound a little pitiful at first, but I don't have a life. And by that, I mean, I don't have a spouse. I don't have children. I don't even have, I don't pets. I don't even have plants. I have a hard enough time keeping myself alive. So I don't have the kind of responsibilities that a lot of other people have that take up their time. If you have a family, you have to pay attention to them. I don't have that. And that's by choice, and I'm happy with that. But that means that I have a lot more time that I can do the things that I want to do. So my typical day when I have projects, active projects, is I'll set an alarm and I get up and I, I treat it like a job. I, have a, I write in the morning. I have a lunch break. I write in the afternoon. I have dinner. And usually during the day, I'll work on the things that I'm getting paid for. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Again, it's a job. And then at night, I will often write the things that are, I'm passionate about. I'll be working on the novels. I'll be working on other scripts or TV shows or movies that I'm, I'm hoping can get produced in other, other places. Rick Garman has written more than 20 movies for the Hallmark Channel and more for other networks. He grew up in Marion, Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.